I think culturally you need to create a space where um, people know their expectations. Hey everyone, and welcome to RCA's new business culture podcast series. My name is Rob Arnold, founder of RCA. This podcast is all about learning from those in business who have shaped world-class business cultures, how they did it, and what they faced along the way in building these great cultures. We look forward to sharing their insights, tips, and tricks with you. In this episode, I visited the iconic Waterford Wine Estate, just outside Stellenbosch, to chat with Damien Jaber Wynn, Head of Sales and Marketing for this global brand. Damien has enjoyed the fortune of working both in the corporate as well as the niche brand space, and speaks about what he has learned from one and taken into the other. We also discuss some key attributes of effective sales teams in today's market. Let's hear his story. And as we always kick things off, we'd love to, to hear just a little bit about your story from, uh, from early days of work up until your position here at Waterford Estate. So I was one of those guys that came out of university and messed around a bit for a while. Not really kind of not sure what I was doing. And I got friendly uh, with uh, one of the buyers for one of the largest importers in the UK. Uh, a woman called Elaine Dickey. She was buying for Chile and Argentina. Um, and she and I were the next morning after party, say, she said, Damien, you're just messing around. You kind of need to get a job. And um, it was a kind of wake up. So uh, she said, listen, you, you're great with, you've got a good palate, you're great with people. Why don't you uh, come into the wine game? And so I thought about it. She then said, I will, our company will sponsor you to do your W sets. Um, and so I went through and studied. And then um, there came a job uh, with Waverley actually um, for Drozdehof, South Africa. And um, I'm not sure if, if it was serendipity or uh, luck, but. Uh, my journey took a different course of action. Um, I uh, ended up working for her largest competitor, my Matthew Clark. So <laughs> on composite wholesale selling. Um, and so that's everything from beer to wine to spirits to everything. And very quickly, I, I was evident I didn't enjoy beer and spirits. Um, and so I took on a territory which was fairly large geographically and then uh, changed that from composite to about 70% wine-led, uh, which in the UK is, is not a bad strategy given the margins that you can make versus the margins made on Smirnoff, for instance. So, um, and, and less battling on pallets and commodity trading than actually consulting. Um, and then from there, specialised. So I was there with, for about two years and then I was poached by a company who distributed for Metzendorf, M&D and so on. So that's Joseph Druan and uh, Louis Roderer and so on. Um, and so I specialised with them. The recession hit and I was one of the casualties. And so very, very soon afterwards I was approached by Molson Coors to help them with their wine programme um, by a colleague I'd worked with at Matthew Clark. Um, an old field sales manager from 
the other side of the country. So he approached me and said, would you come and work for us? I know you're not going to be here long because there's a beer element, of course, but I just need a startup. So I need someone strong. So I went to work for them um, and I wasn't there long. I was there 18 months, went on to move into a wine job again with um, Michael Saunders at Babendum and worked on a project, startup project with him called Vivis, which was a logistic um, setup, um, essentially a food business and a wine business coming together. And I was the wine business doing that sort of amalgamation. Um, and after that, uh, I then started working on brand. Um, and one of the brands I worked with was Perry Jouette and Mim with Pernerico. Again, second um, redundancy because uh, champagne sales were down um, due to Prosecco's growth in the UK market. And so the five team of um, champagne brand managers were removed uh, from the UK. And I worked for one of my customers. So I was sat in the Royal York Britannia hosting him at dinner at the Champagne Academy and he said, Damien, I, I understand you, you guys are all being made redundant. Won't you come and work for me? Now, it made sense. Um, he was not far from my parents' house. There was, uh, um, my father was just by himself at the time. And so it made sense to be in his office and close to dad. Mm. So again, sometimes serendipity plays a role. Uh, within that portfolio was Waterford Estate. Um, uh, but Avon Sadi and Molyneux and Screaming Eagle from California and Silver Oak from California and also the opportunity to work in the on-premier game um, and so I did for five years and looked after um, their key accounts um, and then had a handle with the teams and so on and um, in 16, 2016 uh, we brought my daughter across to meet her South African in-laws um, and in 17 we made a plan to move and f someone again I'd worked with in the trade and um, uh, Gareth Robertson or Bear um, had put my CV in front of Kevin Arnold and Kevin Arnold then said uh, sent me an email saying I can't remember exactly, but I don't know if you know who I am. I'm Kevin Arnold from Waterford Estate, sort of thing. And um, um, Gareth has put your CV in front of me and said we should have a coffee. Um, I'm looking for someone at the, the estate. So um, so I made every effort to, to be at the tastings to meet Kevin and then on to Jeremy and then mm. finally on to South Africa. So Wow. Long quite a few uh, different experiences along the way. Yeah. What I'd be interested to know is, is working within those different uh, types of environments, I suppose all slightly different in, in some way or another. Mm. Um, Hugely in some ways. Fair enough. What, what resonated with you in some cases and what did the opposite for you in terms of experiences working with different types of people or yeah. different structures? Um, what, what in that path so far has really has uh, been elements without mentioning which ones they are, but which you enjoyed and which didn't sit well with you? Um, so for me, I've worked in three main corporates, four main corporate spaces. Uh, the first one was um, you know, a satellite corporate space, so it's, it doesn't feel as corporate, and it was the first job, so I had no benchmark to, to work against. The second job was an independent 
um, specialist. Um, and when I was with the Vivas project, um, you know, one day you're handling 36 telesailers, telemarketing wine, and then eight brand managers around um, Scotland handling everything from chips, cheese, sausage to Chateau Neuf de Pape. Um, and so the trying to get them enthusiastic about a product which they don't enjoy was tough. Um, the corporate space though was very parameter driven and very admin heavy and but gave the good thing about corporate is it gives great grounding in terms of process. Um, the bad thing is it gives you less autonomy to make those decisions that, that matter in the moment with customers. So um, which do I enjoy more? Independent, 100%. Um, but I value the time I spent with corporate space because the processes that I use today and I try and also instill in our teams uh, are loosely based on those processes. Mm. So. And I mean, you've obviously experienced quite a, a change, I guess, in the sales um, evolution, you know, in that time, I guess, is how, how sales works. I suppose it is different environments at the same time, but it, it has changed. Um, where do you think sales have gone to today in, in the sense of what, what creates effective selling today versus what, what it used to be perhaps when you started? Or, or is there anything that has changed for you? Enormously. I mean, so I... When I got into the trade, I um, was lucky enough to have three months shadowing um, who was a very process-driven chap called uh, Fred Neelings. He was about to retire and I was taking his place. He was a spirits guy, I was a wine guy. Um, and very quickly, he, you could see this behavior pattern which he had. He'd get into his car, I'd be sat in the passenger seat and you'd see this routine he'd go through. His cup would go in his cup his apple would go in his uh, the cup holder, the second cup holder. His books with all his files would sit in the footwell, and he'd take out individual ones just before a call. He'd mark what he'd done last time, checked that off, checked what he'd agreed, made sure he'd done it, made a few phone calls, gone in, and he was prepared. And then he'd come out, and he'd get on his phone, he'd phone through the order, and every single call, this process happened, um, and. When I took on the wine position uh, or sort of ch change of that territory, people were, they didn't, they weren't educated about wine. They didn't know about, they knew about red and white and rosé. They didn't know Chile Merlot. They didn't know uh, Argentinian Malbec. They didn't know New Zealand Sauvignon. They didn't, this was new to them. So coming in was almost, uh, you were the specialist and they would take your advice immediately. That was in 2002, 2003, and now um, people's understanding of wine has grown, so they are educated. We can no longer dictate to them what they should and should not have on a list. It just doesn't work, and people actually are resistant to somebody who comes in and says, oh, but you must have. Mm. No, I'm, I mustn't have. Who, who says I must have? Mm. I'll decide. And so now it's gone to a consultancy um, uh, model where only 
if we understand the value proposition for the customer, can we actually make a difference? Because if we don't understand what our product means to them and what it means on their list or in their portfolio or to the, and then to their consumers, mm. then we're fighting a losing battle. So um, we really have to understand the market, understand who our customers' competitors are, who their customer base is, their customer, the end user, who they are, uh, so that we can say, actually, you know, sometimes my product doesn't work on this list, and that's okay. Um, however, this product from uh, our portfolio, or sometimes even this product from another portfolio or a neighbor, for instance, another winery, I think would work better. And that um, consultation is worth far more long-term because the trust and the loyalty is driven through that style of selling. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that value add beyond your own interests is obviously something which sits really well from an intention point of view with, um, with, with your clients. Um, you've obviously seen your fair share of, uh, of effective and ineffective salespeople, I suppose. And I guess you started to answer the question a little bit in your previous answer, but are there any kind of traits or attributes or anything that for you, off the top of your head, that, that differentiate someone who is successful in, in, in this game? Um, yes, of course. The, the, I mean, the, I suppose they've got, they need to be able to listen, learn. I mean, the willingness to learn and ask questions and build relationships is f first the key to, to um, building the trust which allows the sale. Um, the, an element of process, sales is always broken into science or creativity, generally. And so um, I want someone who's creative, but I also want someone who's a touch scientific in the way that they think about the preparation and the sale and the, um, the return for, for that sale, not just in investment terms, but in terms of the relationship return, um, the loyalty return, um, the trust return, and then also profit return for both parties. So we need to consult on both sides. Yeah. Um, so, but I want people to be autonomous, to make their own decisions, to be creative, creative enough to say to me, I've got this opportunity, mm. I need to do this. Um, and then my question to them is, have you run the numbers? Does it make sense? Mm. How does it feel to you? And then if they can answer those questions, then it's probably the right thing to do. Mm. And it's interesting, you, the example you used earlier of that sort of quite methodical approach to um, a process, I suppose, is one element. But you, I suppose, like you said, you need that artistry or that creativity as an aside to that. To, to Interestingly enough, I think what, what, where we find is, is important these days is that sort of problem-solving as aspect or element. And I think you've spoken about it earlier. Mm. But it's interesting to find, or quite challenging to find someone who encapsulates both those um, skill sets or traits. So Agreed, because creative people are generally terrible at admin, mm. and scientific head, uh, heavy people are generally terrible at trying to find a creative solution to do, a problem within the market. Do you then find that perhaps it's good to have a mix of those types of people within a sales team? Or? Uh, once upon a time I did. Once upon a time I thought the science guys should deal with retail, okay and the creative guys should do with trade. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure okay. I still agree with that, yeah. given the way that retail now goes, sure. but um, once upon a time, that I would have segmented that way. Yeah. yeah. 
Which brings us on to this next sort of topic of um, which we focus a lot on, which is, is organizational culture such and, and how businesses operate as, <clears throat> as, as cultures. Um, there's a big argument to say that the effectiveness of people within a business is often based on, on the psychology of the people within the business and how the environment either lends itself to creating the right psychology or the opposite. What, in your mind, typifies, and according to your experience, typifies a culture that, I guess, creates an environment where people do feel like they can optimize their work, etc.? What are some of those elements of that business or the, or the culture as such that for you are important? Um, without doing the Myers-Briggs uh, psychology test, yeah. uh, um, I think... Um, I think culturally you need to create a space where um, people know their expectations, um, they know what they're shooting for, so the targets are set. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a fan of moving targets, so if you hit your target, well done. Um, and then I would step those targets to say, okay, let's try and hit the next one, but actually the reward comes when you hit your target, not when I move the goalpost. Um, so I think that drives uh, strong cultural sort of sales and achievement within the, the team. Um, it, to keep it set, I mean. Um, I think a space where people feel they're developed, um, that they, their knowledge is growing, and if they're the right people, they should, that, they should value that. Um, and that uh, they have the autonomy to make decisions, that they feel part of something which is bigger than themselves um, and that they get rewarded for contributing to the growth of that larger entity. Mm. So as a, as a leader within uh, a culture, within an organisation, um, which is often, I guess, one of the toughest uh, roles in terms of keeping a business culture going, um, what do you find the most challenging aspect about, I guess, leading a sales team and leading people that are um, dealing with, I suppose, quite a lot of challenges out in the trade, etc. What do you find is, is the most challenging part about leading a team like that? Um, time to listen to them, okay. I think, is the biggest challenge yeah. for me. Um, I often don't think I spend enough time with my guys and girls, if we're just to not be sexist. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'd love to have more time to spend listening to them and um, challenging their um, ways of doing things in, the, in a good way. Mm. Um, I often feel as if uh, I don't have a lot of time to really develop the guys um, in a tangible way mm. and take them from A through B to C. Um, and that's always feels like an afterthought where it should be a forethought. That's my biggest challenge. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's never an easy thing to, I guess, apportion time in the best way because there's always something which is important on the horizon which we don't always foresee or comes up unexpectedly, etc. Mm -hmm. um, on a more individual or personal note, as a, as a wine enjoyer or drinker, what are you drinking at the moment? <laughs> well, I'm about to drink um, Black Book Winery Pinot Noir, which mm -hmm. is uh, English Pinot Noir. Um, 
tomorrow at a Pinot Noir event. Um, I in generally enjoy though uh, Chenin Blanc. Mm -hmm. I have always, always been a Cabernet lover. Mm -hmm. um, so thankfully, I'm here at Waterford. But um, I, I started drinking Cabernet at university um, with a friend of mine, Swan, who was uh, French. We thought we were the bee's knees, um, the cigars and, and cab in a jazz bar. But, um, and so that's carried through. That's, mm. I've always, Cabernet's been a strong player. So it's always a first, second choice in mm. the house. Um, am I a fan of crazy varietals and crazy craft, artisanal vessel and all that stuff? Look, I th there's a place for it. Mm. Um, I'm never a second glass orange wine guy, but I am a first glass. I'd like to taste it, like mm. to see what's going on, but um, but I haven't found one yet that's um, that makes me want to buy a mm. case. Okay. So, another question we always ask our um, our guests towards the end of the interview is if you could, uh, if you had to visit one restaurant for the rest of your life, <laughs> which uh, which restaurant would that be? Yo, that's tough. Given the people that I've looked after in in my history. Um, I'm probably upsetting at least a few of them. Um, Andrew Fairley's at Glen Eagles, mm -hmm. and controversially because of one dish that he did, and he did every time we were there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I won't tell you what was in the dish <laughs> because it's also controversial. <laughs> but needless to say, I've never had that dish served like that anywhere mm. else in the world. Um, it was incredible. Um, I'd take my mother's spaghetti bolognese as well. <laughs> I think you're appeasing a few people and over that uh, final bit of that answer. Um, Dan, yeah, thank you so much for, for your time. It's always great to chat. And just to, um, to end off with an acknowledgement to, to you, I think what you've done um, at Waterford with the team and your uh, the value that you've already brought is is remarkable. So I think from the outside perspective, it's very clear to see. Um, yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge you for, for what you've done. So thank you for your time and what, everything that you've done here at, at the farm as well. Cool, thank cool. you. Thanks, Dan. Mm -hmm. No worries. That's it for today, guys. If this episode brought you value, please do subscribe to the podcast series. And for more information on building your organizational culture, visit us at rcaconsulting.biz. We'll see you in the next episode.